This is Amateur Logic, episode 89 for April 15th, 2016. This episode of Amateur Logic was brought to you by MFJ, the world leaders in ham radio accessories at mfjenterprises.com, and by ICOM. Spring is here. Get out, get mobile with ICOM's D Star radios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Amateur Logic. I'm George. I'm Peter. And I'm Emil. And Tommy's something missing here. Yeah, uh, it's it's Tommy. He couldn't be with us tonight. He had to be out of state this weekend. So we're going to try our best to do this show without a co-pilot tonight. Uh, you guys just just kind of hang on there, and uh, maybe we'll get through this with no injuries. What, he's done a runner and gone over the state line, has he? Uh, he has, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, great to be back. Got a, uh, a big show lined up tonight, nonetheless. Plenty of content here. Uh, a lot going on. I'm gonna, I've got just a little tip tonight on a particular wire splice that uh, a lot of you probably already know about, but I would assume there's uh, people who don't. Uh, Tommy's got a segment coming up. He compares the Raspberry Pi uh, original Model B, uh, the B Plus, I believe, maybe the two. I'm not sure if he tried the three or not. He may. I haven't watched his video, but it's a shootout amongst the different Raspberry Pis on speed and such. And uh, Peter, what have you got tonight? Well, actually, I've got an exclusive preview of the Raspberry Pi. Four, so uh, it's pie for everybody. Okay, uh, Emil, what are, what are you going to have tonight? Well, George and Peter, I, I have um, a continuation of the uh, di- change in direction on my end. Uh, I needed a higher speed connection out to the shack, which was just beyond the uh, limits of copper. So I uh, went wireless, and uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay. I've watched yours, by the way, and uh, yeah, good stuff. Uh, it's going to be interesting. You'll want to see that. Well, let's get on into uh, to some of our emails and uh, comments and such here. I've got one that comes from Larry Snyder, HK2LS. I'm not sure where HK is. Hmm. I think it's the Korea from memory. Maybe somebody in the chat room knows. Yeah, I, d- I don't remember, but uh, anyway, he says, I really enjoy you talking about electronics, transmitters, and antennas. I think your job is very interesting, and you get to think all the time. Well, yeah, uh, more than I want to a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering when running ESSB at 4K, uh, he's, he's talking about, I believe they call it enhanced single sideband at 4 kilohertz, bandwidth does this affect the signal transmitted as far as range i.e will the signal transmit as far given the same power uh, antenna 
and time as it'll transmit with 2.7 kilohertz. I understand the frequency would be wider, but I don't know if there's a relationship with increasing bandwidth versus transmit range. I understand if uh, someone's on an adjacent frequency. Well, Larry, I'm going to try to net... Uh, oh, by the way, he's in uh, Colombia. Okay. Oh. Cool. Uh, Greg uh, over in the chat room is saying no, that it, it won't affect it. Uh, I'm going to say... Yeah, it'd be very little. I mean, you, I don't think you would hear much effect there as, as far as um, how far your signal will go. If there was a big difference in bandwidth, you you might hear some uh, effect there. But uh, generally, the difference between uh, two point seven kilohertz and four kilohertz, I don't I don't think you would notice any difference in your transmit range. Now you'll sound a little better with four kilohertz than you will with two point seven audio, but you're also going to be occupying more bandwidth. And if there's anybody right next door to you, yeah, they're they're not really going to appreciate that much. I like a good sounding um, uh, station, and, and he's talking about on uh, HF here, and uh, he's talking about single sideband. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of like a good sounding single sideband station, but you've got to you know kind of balance it with uh, how much bandwidth are are you taking away from someone else and. Are you interfering with someone else? Um, I don't particularly like the ones that are real thin, uh, 2.4 kilohertz and all. I mean, that's more like communications audio. You add just a little little bit to it and don't get carried away. You, you add a little uh, crispness to the audio, uh, a little, depending on the radio, maybe a little uh, rounder bottom end. But... Um, uh, Bob Heil uses the term articulation. You know, it, it kind of mm -hmm. helps out with that, being able to uh, distinguish different uh, letters from each other. But anyway, Larry, there's uh, there's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. Email, I believe you've got, uh, what have you got here, a Google Plus? Yeah. A comment um, for us while, tonight? I do. Uh, a while back, I believe you had uh, posted a uh, article from electronic products where DARPA is willing to pay uh, pub the public to uh, weaponize their household appliances. <laughs> and uh, like I said, I'm, you know, I'm not too sure about the whole validity of that article in general, but um, I'm, I should go ahead and submit my uh, local uh, oven slash cooktop as, as is. <laughs> okay. Actually, that um, electronic products is um, that's that's a well-respected website. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking there must be something to it. They're wanting to see if uh, terrorists can take their household appliances. And yeah, um, yeah I'm more worried about my wife than the terrorists because if she's watching <laughs> this, uh, some of those things might be considered as IEDs, and I'm in trouble in general. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of when I used to, um, uh, uh, as you recall, I did a segment where I discussed my aerial setup for my IC51, and the uh, the antenna setup was, was not connecting properly at one stage, and it was causing a lot of uh, stray RF. Every time I went to transmit, I would get an electric shock off the uh, one of the buttons on the radio, so it was sort of weaponized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So if you could just get the enemy to sit there and transmit, you might might be <laughs> on to something. <laughs> well, as we mentioned earlier, Tommy couldn't be with us tonight, but uh, he did get this video put together. And it's on uh, the Raspberry Pi, the various models, and how they compare to each other. So let's take a look at that. For those of you that follow on social media, you noticed I got a Raspberry Pi 3 recently, and I mentioned I wanted to benchmark it. Well, I also got a Raspberry Pi 2 not too long before that, and I got a Pi Zero in between those two, and I've got a drawer full of, <laughs> essentially a drawer full of uh, Raspberry Pi Model Bs. I've probably got about five or six of these. But anyway, uh, with all the different varieties that you can get or have, uh, it's kind of hard to decide which one to use for what task. Uh, obviously, the newer ones are up to more um, heavy-duty computing tasks. I want to run them through their paces and see how they come out, just out of curiosity, and see what kind of improvements have happened on the performance over the, the evolution of them. Now, there are a few models that I don't have. I don't have a B+, and I don't have the Model A's. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll go with what I've got here. For my benchmark, I'm going to calculate pi. What's more poetic than to calculate pi on a bunch of Raspberry Pis? So I'm going to calculate it out to 5,000 digits to the right of the decimal so they'll run long enough to generate a little heat. Through the process of doing the calculations, I've got an infrared thermometer here, and I'm going to kind of check the temperature of the little CPU and, and see what the difference in the temperatures are, just for curiosity's sake. Now, none of these have been overclocked. I'm not a really a big believer in overclocking. I'm more of a fan of stability than a few minor little improvements in speed. Let's start with our Model B Raspberry Pi. This is not the original one. The original one had 256 megs of RAM. This is the 512 uh, mega RAM version. Uh, let's go ahead and hook up my Wi-Fi dongle here. And we're going to use um, this little micro SD card for all four Pis. It took a little time and I set this card up and it works for all four of these Raspberry Pis. It connects to the Wi-Fi on all four of them using the dongle I just showed you and for the three it uses the built-in uh, Wi-Fi that came on that board. For this one we'll put it in this little SD card adapter that'll go from micro SD to SD. I have an HDMI cable here that I'm going to hook up just so I can see the output on the TV over there and make sure there's no problems. And let's go ahead and boot it up. To do my test we're going to use the little BC application that's came with the distro and the Raspberry Pi. It stands for basic calculator or basic calculations and I actually searched on the internet for a program to calculate Pi and I found this little one line that implements that utility to do it. So I'm a big fan of copy and paste so we're going to take the easy route out today. So we'll SSH into the Raspberry Pi. I went ahead and set that up beforehand so I can get into it. We'll bring up the terminal and let's go ahead and SSH in. Now this is the SSH command. Uh, dash L means to log in with Pi as a username and the name of my Pi is Jarvis. And yeah, I must have been watching Iron Man or something when I set up this card. So, but that's been the name of it for quite some time, so. That's your service, Engage heads up display. Okay, we're in, so let's scroll down through here and I actually have the command already there. That's the command I want to use. It's uh, time is going to actually 
measure the time when the application starts and display the time that's elapsed for pretty much any application that you run on Linux. So that's it. There are our uh, command for the BC application is scale equals 5000, which is the places to pass the decimal. And this is the calculation to calculate pi, and it's going to pipe it into the BC application. And L means use standard libraries. Um, so anyway, let's go ahead and kick it off. And when I do that, I'm going to take my thermometer and I'm going to keep a check on the temperature of the CPU. Now at the bottom of my thermometer here, it'll show the max temp. So if I move the infrared sensor around the CPU, it'll pick up the maximum and hold it during that session. So, okay, let's get it started. And it's off. And I'll start checking the temperature. One hundred thirteen point one. If I touch the CPU on it, it feels warm, but it's not hot. And it finished. It looks like it was three minutes, thirty-seven seconds. Okay, so let's move on to the next one. And it's off, so let's go ahead and kill the power. Notice we did a clean shutdown. And let's replace that. Let's disconnect the Wi-Fi. And let's remove the micro SD card out of the adapter and set this B aside because we should be finished with it for the time being. Let's try this little Model Zero. In my mind, this one has the most potential. It has one downfall, though. It doesn't have built-in Wi-Fi. And the only reason that it's a problem to me is because you to hook anything up to it, you've got to use a micro USB to standard USB adapter. And then if you're going to hook up more than one thing, you need to hook up a hub to it. So if I need Wi-Fi and a keyboard, then I've got to have this. But for this instance, we're just going to use the Wi-Fi dongle that I had earlier. So we'll plug it into the adapter. And then we'll plug this in to the one that says USB right here. You have to be careful. One's marked USB, one's marked power. And we're going to need our memory card. Same one we used in the last demonstration. So let's plug that up. Set all this together. And let's put a little power on it. And let's see, we got a light. It flashed. There we go. We'll give it time to boot up. Okay, let's SSH in. Same command, since it's the same card. Same password. Works fine. We'll go ahead and jump right into the benchmark. Same exact command we used previously. We'll give it a few minutes to run, and then we'll hit it with a thermometer here. 106.1. Give it some more time. 109.4. It's steady climbing. Now, if I ran something that took an hour, um, I'm not sure what the temperature would get up to, but I'm assuming it would be a lot greater. 112.7. And the time it took was, wow, 2 minutes and 33 seconds? I didn't expect that. Okay, so let's go ahead and shut this one down as well. Give it a minute to do a clean exit. And then we'll, now let's remove the power. We're going to need this card. Now let's go with the Model 2. So 
I've already got an EDI Max card in here, so I'll just leave it. This is the one I kind of leave running most of the time to tinker around with. And let's plug the card in. Let's go ahead and apply the power and give it time to boot up. I expect this one to complete a lot faster than the previous ones. Let's SSH back in. And again, this one's called Jarvis as well because it's the same card. And let's go ahead and kick off our calculation. Okay, I got 102.6 and I got 2 minutes and 8 seconds. Let's shut this down and let's look at the new kit on the block, the Pi 3. Next one is going to be fun because I'm not going to plug anything up. This board's got built-in Wi-Fi and I already have it configured. The only thing we need to do is get the memory card out of this one. Let's SSH in. So far we're up to 109.7 and that was it. Wow, look at that. It's uh, nearly half of the time. Okay, so that didn't take very long. Let's go ahead and run our other benchmark. Now I want to test my desktop application and compare it with my fastest Raspberry Pi. I read people saying, wow, this is truly a desktop replacement computer. And f for browsing, it sure can be. But for everyday use, for everything, I don't think you're going to want to settle for that. But let's just check it out and see how it compares to my iMac. Okay, that finished pretty quick. I got a 28,339 score on Octane 2. So let's go ahead and start up Octane on the Raspberry Pi 3. One quick word about my benchmark here. I realize that it's flawed. This is not the ultimate test of the processor power of a computer or the computer itself rather, not just processor. There's a GPU that's to be considered, there's memory access speed, there's disk access, which in this case would be memory card. There's the speed rating of the card itself. Uh, there's uh, just so many different factors and I realize this is just one. I just wanted to get an idea uh, using the common calculation just a, just a step and see how it looks. Well, that was definitely interesting. As you can see by the numbers, there's quite a bit of difference there between the different Pi's just for calculating Pi. And as far as using a Pi 3 for a desktop alternative, if your expectations are pretty low, you might get by with it. But I just don't think that would cut it for my own use. Anyway, it was fun and satisfied the curiosities that I had between the different Raspberry Pi's I own. And uh, anyway, maybe you guys found it interesting too. 73. We'll see you next time. Well, interesting segment there from Tommy. I would not have, um, I would not have thought the Pi Zero was going to uh, beat the original Pi, but um, mm. you know. There you go. One question I had though, uh, George, was whether in the Pi Two and the Pi Three tests, whether uh, full advantage was being taken of the quad core architecture, or whether it was just using one of the cores. So, um, you know, was there multi-threading going on? If, if not, you know, if, if it was set up to multi-thread, would it actually run four times faster? Uh, well, save that question about 30 days, and we'll mm -hmm. ask Tommy when he's back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure I... he could program it in if he wanted to anyway. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, an interesting comparison, but uh, it just shows the evolution of the uh, Raspberry Pi over time that it's becoming, although it was never intended to be, more and more like a desktop computer. Yeah, yeah, not quite there yet, though. What do you think, Emil? 
I'm thinking that uh, Moore's Law is catching up to the pie. Ooh. Oh, yeah? Or is, that, or is that the other way around? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> They're catching I mean, up as, with as each they other. shove more transistors in there, you know, and uh, more power and more uh, technology of the buses. And just like Peter said, uh, core uh, processes, you know, that's, that's going to be a, probably more than a desktop. Yeah. So this could be Emile's law, uh, namely that the <laughs> speed of the pie will double every couple of years. <laughs> Emile's law. I like that, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> yep. could, could work. Well, I, you know, I don't have a Pi Zero yet. I haven't ordered one or a Pi Three. I've got a number of the Model Bs. I skipped the B Plus. I got uh, a couple of the Model Twos, and I'm not really doing anything with any of them right now. I just, I just haven't ordered a three. As your shack grows with additional radios and antennas, it becomes impractical to swap antenna cables around for different operating combinations. That's when antenna switches become an important addition, and no one offers you more choices in antenna and transmitter switches than MFJ Enterprises. The MFJ1702C is a two-position cavity-type coax switch that handles up to 2.5 kW PEP, and it's usable through 450 MHz. The MFJ Rhino switches feature gold-plated flanges and connector contacts for low VSWR and insertion loss. Rock-solid die-cast construction makes it tough inside and out. The MFJ2702 is a two-port switch with either SO239 or Type-N connectors to cover from DC to 1 or 3 GHz at up to 2 kW on HF, 1 kW on VHF, 500 watts on UHF, and 250 w above. The MFJ2703 offers the same performance in a three-way design, and the MFJ274 is the four-port model. The MFJ1701 is a six-position 50-75-ohm HF antenna switch rated at 2KW PEP. Easily connect one radio to six antennas or six radios to one antenna. The MFJ1703 is an inexpensive HF antenna transceiver crossover switch that gives you a simple way to share two antennas with two radios. The MFJ1700C is a deluxe high-power HF antenna transceiver switch with two ceramic rotary switches that let you select one to six antennas to one to six transceivers in any combination. You can also plug in an antenna tuner, watt meter, or linear so it's always connected to the selected antenna and transceiver. No matter what your RF switch needs, no one offers you more solutions than MFJ. See all the great choices today at MFJEnterprises.com. Back to the show here. Peter, I believe you have an email that came from a fan who was responding to something you had said. Yeah, uh, Ed, uh DD5LP, uh, who's from Pool, I hope I got this saying this right, it's Pulgen in Bayern in Germany, southern Germany, uh, watched the latest edition where there was some discussion about having a European member, and he notes the logistic problems in having people like, uh, uh, across three wildly different time zones. Uh, he suggests that he might be able to contribute uh, in his semi-retirement. Uh, look, we uh, we welcome uh, any videos that uh, the viewers can actually contribute. Um, uh, you just send them through to George, and uh, he'll uh, assess whether they're appropriate for uh, the show. 
But um, yeah, we've uh, we've had that offer out there for a long, long period of time. So uh, if people have got an interesting project, or even you know just a photograph of something interesting that they're doing, you know uh, either put it on our Google Plus page or our uh, Facebook page, or send it through to us, and uh, we'll have a look at it. Yeah, yeah, we're always looking for uh, videos from some users. That's how Peter joined us on the show, and uh, and this other guy over here too, email. Mm. He just, uh, I don't know, just, well, Emil and I kind of knew each other. We had talked before some uh, on the air. But, uh, yep. yeah, you know, we were asking for people from uh, Europe or from England, and we got. <laughs> oh, Diodonais is French. I just happen to live in, you know, around a city that was once French, so, you know, New Orleans. Yeah. Close yeah. enough. Oh, yeah. Well, you, your part, uh, uh, you've got a partly French background, George, as well, haven't you? Uh, yeah, uh, partly um, on my grandfather's side. I've got a little bit of French, German, British, and uh, who knows? But, I mean, we, you know, redneck. Mutt. Mutt, yeah. <laughs> That's not the term I was looking for, oh, Emil, oh, but okay. uh, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> Well, I've got an email here. This one, um, actually, it came to Tommy, but they copied me on it as well. If you were watching uh, right before we started the live stream tonight, uh, we were playing uh, last month's Ham College on there, and we had talked about satellites. And I made the comment that the um, geostationary satellites are always moving. And he said, yeah, they're always moving to, you know, keep up with Earth. And I said, no, that's not what I mean. They're always moving in a little circle as they go around the Earth. Have you heard of that, Peter? Uh, yes, indeed. In fact, I've heard of um, some Russian satellites that uh, over time they drift slightly away from where they're supposed to be. Yeah. And they start to do little figure eights. Well, this... Um, yeah, this this came from uh, Greg Messenger VE six WGM. Canada, isn't it? Yeah, he said uh, that he had noticed in the recent episode, and that Tommy looked like he didn't believe me. So he said George was right. Geostationary satellites do drift, and they have to be given corrections to keep them from drifting too far. Quote out of the box, and that's what you call it. Just a is there's an imaginary cube in space uh, outlining the maximum drift distance allowed. And look up the term center of the box, and that'll, that'll explain it to you. But he says many times with higher gain, uh, receive only, and most two-way communication dishes are being installed, the field tech will have to wait until the satellite is center of box. Then, then he can do his final peaking get it all just right so uh, yeah they do drift and that's what i was uh, referring to and i just couldn't remember the term i've got a just a short segment here on the correct way to splice wires now this is really for um, um, solid wire not for stranded wires although you could do it with stranded wire this is the way that nasa requires that wires be spliced of course you'll You'll solder them, too. But there's a splice that's been around since the Western Union days called the Lyman splice. 
And, uh, well, I just threw together a little video here about it. A lot of you probably know about it, but uh, I, I bet there's some that don't. What if you needed to splice two wires together and you needed the splice to be really strong? The tip we're going to look at here works best with solid wire, but could be done with stranded wire. It's called a lineman splice. First thing you do is strip back a generous portion of insulation and get both wires the same length. We'll lay them end to end like this. And we'll start by wrapping the wire on the left over. The wire on the right will go under, or basically like this. And then we continue the left-hand wire going over. Now, the way the Western Union technicians would do this is to use needle-nose pliers to get these wraps super tight. And you'll notice that I'm not really doing that here. For NASA specifications, you need at least three wraps there. We're going to go on out. Approximately five wraps. These wires need to be right next to each other. Now, if you're planning on soldering this, you'd want to tin these wires before you begin. And now we'll clip back either end of the wire. And here's our Lankman splice. If it's done properly, this splice is at least as strong as the wire itself. As you pull, it just tightens up. Next time you need to tie two wires together, give this a try. You might not want to strip back quite as much insulation, though. That's really the amazing splice there. I mean, it actually does pull together. Just looking at it, you would think, oh, the thing's going to unwind. And I think if you did it with stranded wire, it's, yeah, it, it probably would unwind easier. But uh works pretty good, uh, you know. It's all in the technique. Yeah, of, all in the technique. Yeah. And uh, with a little bit of uh, heat shrink around that, you've got a, a really, really good joint and, uh, and, you know, one that you can rely on. Yep, you sure do. Well, Peter, what have you got for us tonight? Set this up for us. We've sort of looked at the, the various incarnations of the Raspberry Pi and there was a recent, recent announcement of the Raspberry Pi 3. Well... Let me tell you all about the Raspberry Pi 4. Hello everyone. Today I've got a very, very special treat for you. An exclusive look at the forthcoming Raspberry Pi 4 mini computer. Not the 3, the 4. In fact, Amatologic is the very, very first show to be given a preview look at this hardware anywhere in the world. So it's quite a coup for this program. But first, some background information. 
Last month, I provided a suggested fix for the Raspberry Pi's main problem, namely the propensity of the SD card to get corrupted. Well, shortly after the release of the episode, I was contacted by Tim, a Raspberry Pi developer in Cupertino in California, and he offered to send me a sample of the forthcoming Raspberry Pi 4 and a detailed explanation of the history behind many of the changes that have been made. The best news is that the Raspberry Pi Foundation has addressed my concern about corruption of SD cards, and the new hardware is simply amazing. Let's start first with an examination of existing Raspberry Pi hardware and discuss its shortcomings. I'm still awaiting the arrival of a Raspberry Pi 3, so we'll examine my Raspberry Pi 2 and keep in mind that the new Raspberry Pi 3 is similar but with added Wi-Fi, Bluetooth and an upgraded quad-core processor. With each iteration of the Raspberry Pi, the processing power of the Pi has increased. The two had a 900 meg quad-core ARM Cortex-A7 processor, and the Raspberry Pi 3 now has a 1200 MHz quad-core ARM Cortex-A53 processor. The Raspberry Pi 4 goes one step further with a 1.85 GHz 64-bit A9 processor. Aside from the problems of corrupted SD cards, the previous Raspberry Pis have also suffered from the propensity for the SD card to be bumped and pop out as it protrudes from the edge of the board. Both problems have been fixed by the inclusion of 4GB of flash memory along with some software changes to ensure that the board is shut down properly each time. No more corrupted operating systems. The board also now includes 2GB of onboard RAM. Another major cause of corrupted SD cards was the external power supply. This has been fixed by the inclusion of a clip-in lithium-ion battery which will facilitate portable operation. The Raspberry Pi 3 saw the inclusion of onboard Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and the Raspberry Pi 4 goes one step further with the addition of a SIM card slot which will facilitate remote data logging applications remote operation and an alternative access path to the internet where Wi-Fi is not available. Now, while some things have been added, a few things have been lost as well. With the addition of Wi-Fi and the SIM card, the Ethernet jack is redundant, so this has been removed. Similarly, with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth on board, there's no longer any need for USB ports, as wireless mice and keyboards can be used instead. Although, as you'll see, even these are unnecessary. This has slimmed down the profile of the new board considerably. There's also been a major change in philosophy by the Foundation, in part driven by legal action. Quite a few children who had been given pies as presents were injuring themselves on the pin headers on the board, which in turn precipitated a class action from angry parents. Also, it's been found that users of the Pi have gravitated less towards building hardware from the Pi and instead focused more on software development. With this in mind, the Foundation took the difficult decision to remove the pins and envelop the board in a plastic case to prevent further injuries. 
However, there's further good news. The optional camera module has now been included as a standard piece of the board and has been upgraded to a 12 megapixel camera which is mounted on the back of the board. The foundation also conducted research into where Raspberry Pis were being sold with a view to making them more accessible to people and more particularly children in developing countries. The major finding was that the Pi was not being purchased in many African countries because many people did not have TV sets nor had access to reliable mains power. To resolve this issue, the foundation has now dispensed with the HDMI connector and the optional capacitive LCD screen is now included as a standard part of the main board. The LCD screen has also been upgraded to a 1334 by 750 pixel resolution. All of these changes have resulted in a much slimmer, more integrated product which will be much more suitable for people in third world countries. In fact, the Foundation is considering introducing a new one Raspberry Pi per child philosophy with a view to selling Raspberry Pis to third world governments for use in their education systems. However, the Raspberry Pi is not immune to competition. There are now Banana Pies, Orange Pies and other competitors who have diminished the brand value of the Pi name. With this in mind, the Foundation has looked at Arduino and concluded that there would be much value in taking advantage of the UNO name, which is amazingly popular. However, this is trademarked, so the Foundation has decided to instead use the English translation of UNO named ONE. The new Raspberry Pi 4 will now be rebranded as the Integrated Peripherals Handset Version 1, or IPH1. There has also been a major software upgrade. Previous Raspberry Pis have been capable of running Raspbian and later on Linux and Android. However, as you may have read, there's now a virus circulating for Android which can steal your bank details. Whilst open source is in theory quite good, in practice it leaves hardware vulnerable to hackers. With this in mind, the Foundation sought a new operating system with less vulnerability, but the capacity to take advantage of the new and expanded hardware. Thanks to skillful negotiation, an agreement has been reached under which iOS will now be ported to the Raspberry Pi. Also, as part of the agreement, the Raspberry Pi 4 will now be made available through Apple stores around the world. I've been told that I can only give you a brief look at the new Raspberry Pi 4 as the Foundation's competitors are keen to copy the new Pi. But as you can see, the new Raspberry Pi has all the new features I just mentioned and has been integrated into a smooth, slim package, which is portable. The LCD touchscreen removes the need for a keyboard and there's now no danger of injuring yourself on any protruding pins or corrupting your SD card. The final point to note is the recommended retail price. Uh, with all the hardware upgrades and also inflation, the prices had to rise slightly from the previous US $35. According to Tim, the cost of the new IPH1 will be just $49.90, which is an incredible deal. Uh, oh, hang on, just one second. Um, I've misread the price, sorry. It's actually $499, but that's still great value. And of course, it's a Raspberry Pi, so it's a must-have piece of hacking hardware. I think it's a winner.
Now, I should point out that all that information came from some guy called Tim in Cupertino in California. So I can't vouch for its authenticity. But I can say that I have seen advertisements for the IPH one in Apple stores. So if you're interested, go to your local Apple store, go up to the counter and ask, look, I'm interested in getting an IPH one and um, just see what answer you get. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to hang on to my money a little bit longer, I think, Peter. <laughs> uh, I noticed your calendar. Your calendar's mm -hmm. not on the wall there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I filmed it a couple of weeks ago. Oh, around, I think it was April 1st, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, had, uh, I think uh, uh, I was, uh, had a free day that day, and I thought oh, it would be an appropriate day to, uh, to, do a, uh, to film the segment. <laughs> no, I was going to totally miss getting stuck by the protruding parts of the pie, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Look, um, how, how many of us have actually, you know, had bloodied hands from working on Raspberry Pi projects? So I think removing those darn pins is a good move. Yeah. <laughs> Party pooper. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I want the pins. 499, whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. As I said, go to your local Apple store. Yeah. Check it out for yourself. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll be back in a moment after this message from ICOM. Spring is here. Get out, get mobile with ICOM's D-Star radios. Extend your coverage, display, and capabilities without sacrificing size with ICOM's ID51A+, now in five colors. RSMS1A free download Android application allows personal device connection where you can view locations of repeater sites, send and receive text messages, or send and receive pictures. It's got DV and FM repeater search functions, D-Star DV mode capability, and micro SD card slot. If you're new to D-Star, try ICOM's ID-880H. Features include VHF-UHF dual-band functionality, one band at a time, good menu structure, and easy programming. Fast multiple scanning for maximum reception. For the ultimate D-Star mobile experience, hit the road with ICOM's ID-5100A. This radio offers hands-free operation, optional Bluetooth capability, large backlit screen for high-contrast viewing, and 50 watts of output power on both VHF and UHF. Visit ICOMAmerica.com for more information on ICOM's D-Star radios. Peter, I, I think after that, you need to redeem yourself in some way. Uh, <laughs> ah, I have a uh, Google comment I could redeem myself with. Okay, like yeah, let, let's try that. Okay, well, I've got a Google comment here uh, from Ray WD5DHK, and apologies for not looking up where, where Ray is actually located, but I presume it's WD is in the US. Uh, several ep episodes ago, Peter talked about JT65. I tried it and loved the mode. I used 3 watts to an indoor antenna, and by the way, note that term, uh, what he says there, an indoor antenna, and have a lot of fun with the mode. Thanks, Peter, uh, Ray, WD5, DHK. Yep, it is a, a really great mode, and um, the, what I really like about it is the low power usage, uh, and it's just ideally suited for people that, uh, you know, maybe because of uh, aerial restrictions or council restrictions, can't put up a big external antenna, but they can still communicate quite considerable distances using the mode. 
and um, it's pretty reliable. I've got to say, it's a, a very impressive um, uh, mode to use. From memory, wasn't it K1JT uh, who uh, developed the mode? Um, I'm trying to remember his name just off the top of my head. Maybe Joe Taylor. Will remember. Joe Taylor. But, Joe Taylor, yeah, yep. uh, and uh, both it and uh, WSPR have been uh, great modes, and people have been uh, having heaps of fun. So yeah, thanks for the uh, the comment, Ray, and uh, yeah, I do re- recommend people uh, checking out uh, w- uh, was it JT sixty five, and if you go back through the old episodes of Aminologic, you'll see that we've done one or two uh, um, episode or segments o- on that subject. Yeah. Uh, email, I believe you've got uh, a Google Plus comment, too, on something interesting. Yeah, it is a Google Plus comment from our uh, buddy uh, Mike, VE3MIC, for the people who want to see that display on an external uh, monitor on a PC. Uh, the software that you use for remote controlling uh, the rigs from ICOM, it's called RS-BA1. Um, that is really, you know, for controlling it uh, remote operations. Uh, anyway, that software will allow you to display that screen, which uh, I saw your review uh, with Ray and, and Tommy the other day, and, and I really like the menu structure. I, I'm, I'm thinking they're kind of merging the uh, classic-looking rig uh, with the uh, newer model. So there's a method to basically display those screens remotely now uh, through that software. Yeah, um, and several of the ICOM rigs will do that with the new software. As a matter of fact, my 7700 will do it. I have not upgraded my version of the software yet so that I can take advantage of that. But I need to because that, that's a really, really nice feature. Um, go out remotely, you know, and, and there you've got your pound adapter and everything on your laptop. Very, very cool idea there. Uh, by the way, I've heard from um, a few people who have bought the um, IC7300s now, and I ask them what do they think about them, and everybody so far is uh, crazy about it. They, yeah, K, uh, K2BAG John in the chat room said he loves his. Yep, yep. Really nice, super-looking rig. Well, email, you've got, um, well, a segment that I, I really enjoyed watching in advance. I cheated. You know, I watched it before the show, but... Uh, I, I really like this. You want to set it up for us? Absolutely. Like I said, um, when uh, the shack, um, I, I tried several iterations of connectivity out to the shack uh, through uh, Ethernet, through the power lines, uh, just experimenting Ethernet, you know, direct. And um, uh, there was a couple of projects that I wanted to try. One providing Ethernet uh, to another uh, location within the uh, neighborhood here, and also. Uh, to the shack out in the back, which is just outside of the reach of uh, normal copper connectivity. So I went ahead and uh, picked up some of the Ubiquity uh, devices uh, that uh, you'll see how I uh, accomplished that within this video. Cool. Let's take a look. Hello, George, Peter, and Tommy. I uh, said we were going to go a little bit different direction this time and uh, holding true to that with this segment. So we're going to look at uh, point-to-point bridge using a uh, network, a special network device to uh, get that signal where you need it to be in a uh, pretty reliable and high uh, capacity throughput at some distance. For my particular test, 
with this uh, technology and with the cost of fiber being as high as it is and my interest in wireless in general I'm going to be using the uh, ubiquity line of point-to-point uh, -point bridging and uh, wireless connectivity to achieve what I'm trying to do with my uh, shack. Just for simplicity's sake I'm going to start with a simple short-range point-to-point link here between my shack and the other device you just saw inside. One of the cool things they did to overcome the uh, coax losses, of course this is running at 5 gigahertz so you can imagine what the losses would be, is to include the entire radio and logic, everything into it over ethernet, uh, especially with the advent of power over ethernet connections here. So the uh, centerpiece here in this dish is the entire radio, logic, web server, everything you need uh, to connect to the other in end. This device, in this device's case, it uses a uh, power injector to uh, send the power over the ethernet cables, which can then be used to feed your uh, computer direct as a uh, station or another switch or um, router device to uh, distribute that uh, bridge to another network. I am quite surprised at the user interface, uh, the web interface in particular for this device. It's very uh, well put together and has a lot of information that's actually useful, um, especially when trying to uh, align or get the dishes to work at their peak or maximum. Um, you can see the active constellation diagrams for all the QAM uh, sources or com conversations happening, which is pretty extensive right now. Uh, there is an effective throughput here of about 655 megabits per second with this uh, link. I actually get around 450, um, if you, especially if you got a lot of stuff going in uh, both directions, but Again, pretty incredible interface for the uh, cost of these devices. Well written software and so far for months it's been working uh, between the shack without fail. In the weather, in the rain, you name it, it just works. Uh, a little bit more about this software. There is a real-time uh, waveform view spectrum analyzer. Uh, the waterfall there builds over time in the middle and at the bottom there is an ambient noise level meter to let you see where the uh, signals are um, to you know help you see what's on the band around you um, you know you might be able to pick uh, bandwidths or um, channels to that better suit your uh, area there's also an alignment tool that helps you get the uh, beams pointed directly at each other um, at the highest signal you, uh, level you can depending on the distance and uh, anything that might be in between. Um, of course I'm running a very short distance uh, with in regards to their capacity so you can see I have a uh, negative 38 uh, dBm signal here but the alignment tools built in as well as long as you can get to the one you're local to um, you'll be able to see uh, what's on the other side. The particular model I picked up was in the uh, 
uh, or is the Ubiquity Power Beam AC model PBE 5AC 300, um, which is very uh, in my, it's in my price range. I'm not going to say it's a uh, cheap old man compliant, but since we've uh, varied from the uh, subject, it's uh, might be moving up in that uh, range of costs. As you can see here by the specs, they claim that the uh, throughput is a possible 550 plus megabits per second at a, a range of 20 plus kilometers. So I'm going to start doing some practical testing to find out how accurate that is in my conditions. You can see here that I have my uh, system currently set to the lowest possible transmission power um, on this device which is that negative 4 dBm you see at the bottom and uh, that's auto negotiating a bandwidth of 80 megahertz and also the uh, TX rate um, methods um, which is like I said earlier achieving about 450 uh, megs link between uh, my shack and the, the home network on the other end the uh, LAN is uh, gigabit or thousand megabits per second full duplex connections to the device itself and again the power that feeds it is uh, fed from an injector um, on uh, the side where each point-to-point -point device is located I am also running this as a bridge layer 2 um, so basically everything that works on the other the network uh, in its same IP range is being fed to this side or the shack side remote there is also a built-in speed tool that you could use to uh, further optimize or to see what you're actually getting compared to what the specs are once you got the link established and set up it will communicate and log into the other end and perform its own uh, lead speed test of the bridge itself across the devices so there's a lot of very good tools in this to see and continuously monitor how the link is performing and like I said it's been outside for a month now uh, in all through all sorts of weathers and uh, wind and you name it um, and has survived so far without incident. It's also a very nice chart to show you the noise floor which is the green at the bottom versus the interference and noise uh, which is the line in the middle thank you motorcycle and also the uh, the signal which is the blue line at the top um, so again very well nice tools to use to, uh, to really show you how it's doing is also a surveyor or site survey feature built in so that you can see what else is uh, might be around your uh, neighborhood or uh, areas of course that's not to be confused with the actual speed of your ISP which is uh, you know differing depending on whatever service provider you're using but this link is providing the absolute uh, highest rating possible of my uh, link that's feeding this uh, my shack so that's uh, that's good to know which is much lower than the actual link speed at least I know I'm going to get everything that's available of course there are several uses here in my shack for this uh, internet connection that a lot of things depend on remote connectivity and uh, eye gates and all the services that I run here in the uh, shack so very uh, 
feature rich uh, program that feeds and does the job quite well and uh, for less than uh, well for two hundred dollars I can't uh, really beat that combination of the uh, ubiquities uh, bridge here so good stuff I had absolutely no trouble with throughput or any other uh, type of uh, issues with it so far and this is not the fastest computer in the world here in the shack but uh, excellent throughput on multiple services and uh, again you know you can actually see what's happening in pretty much real time um, with the device and uh, it's so far really good so I'm, in re I'm really impressed with it and plan on using it to feed the uh, shack here so 73s i hope you enjoy if you decide to go down these roads yeah i really want one of those and i don't even have a use for it well don't get mm -hmm. one of them you got to get two of them well they, <laughs> do they come as a pair or do you buy, have to buy them separately they sell them single but uh, most places bundle them in twos fours and sixes yeah um yeah. uh what the reason i really bought them was to uh do a project for our local ham or amateur radio club here uh we're going to feed the club uh internet connectivity or ISP connectivity from several points over seven miles, six miles, and five miles. Plus, we'll kind of have a roving um, station that we can send out mobile and link back up to the club. So we're kind of trying a whole bunch of things on different fronts, and my test initially out of the box was to hook the shack up. Yeah, I've, I've really could use some of those at uh, some of my transmitter sites between... Uh um, various locations so that I could get some internet out to them but uh, I, I don't know that well I, one of them I can't get a shot to that's the reason I'm on a T1 now so uh, 5 gigahertz I know I'm not going to have a chance if I couldn't make it with uh, 900 megahertz no 5, five gigs is not tree friendly right no no <laughs> I did want to mention the place to get your wardrobe that none of us are wearing this week. You'll often see us wearing our Amateur Logic swag. AmateurLogic.spreadshirt.com. You can find the t-shirts, polo shirts, caps, uh, hoodies, sweatshirts. You can even find that infamous Ham College um, slash Animal House sweatshirt on there, designed by our um, our friend Mike VE3MIC. But AmateurLogic.spreadshirt.com. Go there, get you some Amateur Logic swag. Fly the colors at the next time fest you go to. I just saw the subject of spreadshirts, uh, uh, George. Um, John, I think it's John Amadeo uh, at uh, Last Man Standing. Yeah. So it was kind enough to send me a, uh, a T-shirt. Unfortunately, it's a bit cold today for me, so I, I can't wear it. But I just want to say thanks to John and everybody at the crew there for the, uh, for the great uh, T-shirt. Yeah, the last man standing shirts. Uh, Tommy and I got one of those too. Those those are nice. And um, yeah, last man standing. He's a he's a ham in the show, and he has a ham shack. And you'll see some nice ICOM gear and other gear in there as well. So uh, and uh, also also George, uh, I can't help but mention that if you look very very carefully on Tim's desk, Tim's actually got a ham radio desks there you'll see a number of qsl cards of people that you may know yeah i i think i've seen did i see yours on there yeah mine is on there and i think yours is on there and tommy's and uh quite a number of other uh well celebrities or people on uh, other uh 
uh, IPTV shows uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. We, we like that show. I guess we, we probably need to call it quits, and uh, we did manage to get through one without uh, Tommy in the co-pilot seat over here. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I'm sure the police will have um, extradited him back to Mississippi by next week. Or yeah. next month, I should say. Yeah, he, he should be back in time for the next show. And it was an interesting segment he had tonight, mm, benchmarking yeah, sure. those raspberry pies. And, uh, email has a great segment you had, too, there on the uh, ubiquity stuff. I, I've had my eye on that. All right, thanks, and we'll uh, we'll continue down that road uh, to see really what's practical. The device says it's capable of 20 kilometers, and there's many bigger dishes and more powerful, um, you know, versions of that. So we'll see what's really practical. Yeah. Okay, any uh, final words before we go, Peter? Oh, look, um, yeah, look, thanks for, uh, to our chat room, uh, for hanging in there with us and, uh, to all our viewers and, uh, for watching, for staying and being loyal viewers. Uh, we're up to episode 89, so we're only, uh, probably another 11 episodes away from the big 100, which will be, uh, I'm sure will be a, an extra big bonus, uh, episode. And I'm looking forward to doing that in the next year or two. Yeah. And by the way, I don't know if we had mentioned it by the, um, on the last show, but we had just shot the IC7300 video uh, here. Ray brought one in. Uh, the first one, or the only one, I think, was in the United States at the time. They're out now, available uh, for sale, and there's there's people talking about them over here in the chat room that are really enjoying them. But uh, that video is out now. Go to uh, the Amateur Logic YouTube channel and search for IC7300. You can find that there. Email, any final words from you? Um, the final words I'm going to say, just because I love hearing uh, Peter say it, is uh, propensity. 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 And, and also the other word would be um, articulation. Articulation. <laughs> Excellent. That's my yeah. words. There was another word, too, Emil, and this, this is the one I will say. And it was, uh, uh, what was it? Was it contribute? Was that it, Peter? Contribute. Yeah. Yeah, it's contribute is what we call it, but I think you called it contribute. Well, so. well I would say contribution, okay, okay. Uh, or con- con- contribute. I, I do sort of pronounce it two different ways. It's a bit like, um, oh, uh, yeah, so I'm just thinking there's a town out in, in – um, uh, out in rural uh, Victoria that gets pronounced two different ways depending on – um, how you like to pronounce it. So, yeah. yeah, there are words like that that can often be pronounced several different ways. Oh, well, yeah, Th- think nothing about it. Gordo calls Morse code Morris code. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Right, now it comes to me, Castlemaine, whether you pronounce it Castlemaine or Castlemaine. We don't even tomato, know what that tomato. is. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, 7-3, thanks for joining us here. And 73s, with- everybody. 73s, everybody. See you next month.
um, the box. There's there's your 50 hertz, Peter. Uh, George, your audio just dropped back or out. In reference to um, the ICOM uh, 7300, the new rig that you guys uh, reviewed with Ray, I think, uh, what was that, a week ago? Yeah, this is not a picture of that at all, is it? No, it sure isn't. <laughs> okay. Well, 